Scripture reading this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to invite you to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 5, and before I read it, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask, Lord, as we look at your word, that your spirit would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would help me as the speaker to have the exact tone that matches your heart full of love for us. I pray for accuracy, that I would add nothing, that I would take nothing away, but that your word and your word alone would minister to our hearts this morning, that we would have the humility to listen to it and to be obedient to it, to be instructed by it, that we would learn the joy of obedience and the sweet peace of forgiveness. And I pray for your help, Lord. It's only by your spirit, it's only by your power that you work in us through your word. And as Jesus taught us to ask, we're asking now. It's in his name I pray, amen. Paul, writing in Ephesians, says something very similar to what we're going to see in 1 Peter this morning. And so I want, to see, I want you to see it in both places. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 20, says this, We are giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, And then he begins to describe how the church of God submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. And begins in verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Since I am talking primarily about marriage, and it doesn't really matter if you're single or married today, this message is for you. In a twisted and sad way, it's appropriate that I'm going to begin by talking about an argument. In 2010, uh, I was working as a graduate assistant at Oakland University while I worked on my master's degree there. And it was the first time that I'd ever had a job where they gave me an office. I was thrilled. I had a desk. I got a place to put all my books. Lauren was thrilled. I had a place outside of our apartment where I could put all of my books. And my office opened onto a mini faculty lounge that was shared really by probably half the floor, but because of where the offices were situated, really the linguistics department and the philosophy department shared this small little corner lounge, and my door was one of the few that opened directly onto the lounge. You know, philosophy means a lover of wisdom, right? That's that's literally what it means, phileo, love, Philosophy, lover of wisdom. Sophos is wisdom. And on that fateful day, three philosophers, three lovers of wisdom, who were really genuinely brilliant people, were sharing lunch in the lounge. And one of them, a woman, 
had bought a salad from the cafeteria. And the sort of fuse to this argument was lit when the plastic container that her salad was in wouldn't open. So she pulled and she yanked and her thumbs are slipping off of it. And of course, the utmost concern in that moment is if she managed to succeed, that the lounge would be covered in lettuce. And so after she struggled for a few minutes, another philosopher kindly offered to help her, and she gratefully allowed him to pry the thing apart. And then he gave her her salad, and she was thankful. And the bomb of the argument went off immediately after that happened, when a third philosopher looked over at the Good Samaritan and the thankful lady and said, you know, I am always afraid to offer my help to a woman because I don't want her to think that I'm sexist by implying that she's weak. And he meant this as a sort of criticism of his own character, like, you fool, obviously you should help any person who's having a hard time, if if you can. But his colleague who had helped the woman took it like a slap in the face because he immediately felt like he had been accused of sexism for helping a woman, implying that he thought she was weak and needed help, even though she had been enormously thankful for his kindness and was enjoying her salad. So the kind man launched into a tirade about how he had recently resolved to stick up for himself more, and he just wanted to say that he had always felt slighted and belittled by his fellow lover of wisdom, And as they carried on, one one other philosopher who is a hilarious guy stuck his head out of his office and said, is this for real? Is this a real argument? To which they said, yes, it is. And that just goes to show we're awfully confused as men and women about how to love each other. And it's not just those Outside the church, none of those people would would even claim to be Christians. They're kind people, they're nice people, but they're not followers of Jesus. They would look at Ephesians and say it's a product of a different culture that has very little to do with us today. Not only are those outside the church confused, those of us who are inside the church, who are followers of Jesus, who believe that God created marriage to be a picture of his love for us in Christ, in the church, is Paul clearly teaches in Ephesians, those of us who are inside the church are still just as confused. So one more story before I get to the text. That same year that I was a graduate assistant was also the year that Lauren and I got married. And we believe what the scriptures teach. I think that if you honor the word of God, you understand that the husband is called to a kind of sacrificial, Christ-like servant leadership. And when Paul says in Ephesians that the husband is the head of the home, there is a type of authority. Now, I say a type of authority because it's not a domineering. It's not my way or the highway. It's not I'm the king and you're my slave. It's not like that at all. That's not how Christ is. That's not how the Bible portrays husbands as loving their wives. But the Bible does portray a husband as having a responsibility to lovingly lead his home with the love of Jesus. And as a young married couple, we wanted our home to be like that. And even though we both came from homes that that were functional in many ways, many ways healthy, many ways had model marriages, the truth is every marriage is broken. And even if you've got a good example, you have to figure it out for yourself. You have to understand how you and your life put it into practice. And with your own besetting sins and the sins of your spouse coming into the picture, it's never a perfect carbon copy of anything you've seen. And we struggled to know what it meant to follow the biblical command. As a husband, I wasn't sure how to lead. And as a wife, Lauren wasn't always sure how to follow. And it was obvious every time we made a decision, even insignificant and small decisions. And husbands and wives, you can testify very often, it's the little things that that produce your most ridiculous arguments, right? So shortly after we moved to Chicago, 
Lauren and I, we spent a week in Washington. We flew out and, and saw my sister and her family. And then we flew back to Chicago. We had only lived there for like a day. So everything was still in boxes in our apartment. We had no food. So the plane landed. We went to our neighborhood near our apartment, which we did not know very well because it was a couple miles north of Moody where I'd lived before. So we didn't know where to go for dinner. All we knew is we were hungry and we wanted food. So I said, where do you want to go? She said, I don't know. Where do you want to go? And I said, I don't know. I, I, I asked you. And so neither one of us had a sense of what, so I said, what do you want to eat? So I don't know. What do you want to eat? I said, I, I don't know. I asked you. And neither one of us knew what we wanted to eat. All we knew was we were hungry. We didn't know the neighborhood. And so we're looking around at restaurants. Like, oh, well, do you feel like Chinese? No, I don't feel like Chinese. Well, how about pizza? Well, pizza takes like 30 minutes to get ready. I don't know. Well, what about a burger? Well, we did know this. You cannot buy a burger in Lincoln Park for less than $15. It's just not possible. So we didn't want burgers, we didn't want pizza, we didn't want Chinese. All we knew is we were hungry, and so we're walking, we're exploring the neighborhood. And you would think that this would be a short, simple, easy conversation. You'd just say, okay, let's eat here. But neither one of us wanted to make the decision. I felt like it wasn't fair for me to decide. I didn't want her to be stuck with a bad decision. She also didn't want to impose her decision on me. So we walked around for over an hour, and we quickly moved from being indecisive to being, you know, you know hangry where you're both hungry and angry at the same time, and you're angry and hungry. So this is a great indication of a highly dysfunctional relationship. No one decides. And I was talking to a couple of guys earlier this week about this experience, and I said, guys, here's what I know. I believe in that moment, not only did I fail to lead my wife in any meaningful way, I failed to love my wife. And this godly old senior from our church looked at me and said, I agree with you. You did fail to love your wife. And it's true. The loving thing to do in that situation would have been to put on my thinking cap to say, okay, I've been married to you for two years. I've known you for roughly six. What kind of foods do you like? You don't care which of them. We're going to go here because I think this is the place where you'll be happiest. Even if you're not giving me any feedback, I'm going to make the decision because somebody needs to, and and you're asking me to make the decision. And so a loving leader in that moment would have thought of his wife first instead of just getting stuck at this roadblock of saying, well, I don't know what I want. You won't tell me. You think through, what is your wife? What would bless your wife? What would help your wife? And the loving thing to do is to lead. Now, I start there because I want to openly confess that my own marriage is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We still make decisions where I struggle to lead and know what that looks like, but we are learning and we are committed to following what the scriptures teach here, and it is so countercultural. You might be here today and you might be a young single person. You might be deeply offended by the verses of Scripture that I'm about to read. You might be a person in a broken marriage and you want out. And you might be deeply offended by the verses that I'm about to read. Or you might be a person who's been married for 50 plus years. And by the grace of God, not that you're perfect, but you can bless the church by saying, man, we've learned that we've been down this road. We've made some mistakes, but we've also learned how to do what's right. You can bless the church by being honest about what you've learned. Look for those of us who are young and dumb. Come alongside us and say, hey, this is how to love your wife like Christ loved the church. In fact, Paul in the book of Titus, instructs older ladies to come alongside younger ladies, and he specifically says, you need to teach them how to love their husbands. Why? Because loving your husband is not a natural thing to do. Men are not easy to love. It's not intuitive. It's not normal. So those of you who have figured out how to do it, you need to teach younger women how to do it. Some of you who are here who are are single, you have seen broken marriages and unhappy men and women, whether they divorced or not, and you might say, I am never getting married. And if that's you, I would ask you to look again at how Christ loved the church and gave everything for her and understand 
that your home is not the model. The broken people that you have seen are not the model of marriage. The model of marriage is Christ and the church. And all of us in the church are brokenly trying to follow that model. And we will get nowhere if we disregard the clear instructions of the Word of God that are helping us learn how to do that. And so I want to begin reminding you, we are in 1 Peter, beginning chapter 3. I want to remind you of the context of these verses that Peter is writing to Christians, many of whom are poor, all of whom are displaced. They are living outside of their homes. He is writing to them. Chapter 2, verse 12 says so that they live in such a way that a watching world sees their good deeds and one day will glorify God. They are living in hope of Christ returning. Peter's not writing them instructions on how to get rich and stay healthy. He's writing to them so that their hope remains in Christ and that until Christ returns, their behavior points people to Jesus. And I want to remind you that things that he says, he begins talking to every citizen. He says, be subject to the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. He even says to servants, be subject to your masters. It took two weeks to talk about that, how God does harshly condemn slavery all throughout the Bible. How in Christ there is neither slave nor free. All are one in Christ. And yet as Peter gives instructions for how to live honorably, he says that our hope is ultimately in God and so we are to bear patiently and to even suffer following the example of Jesus who suffered on our behalf even though He was innocent. And then he turns and he gives instructions to wives and husbands. And very clearly, Peter is addressing different people who are vulnerable, are in horribly dangerous situations. And he seems to give the most instructions to those who are most vulnerable. So you see him giving quite a lot to servants who had very few rights, who could even be killed if their masters were displeased with them. And then you see him turn to wives who who had a few more rights than servants, but still almost no rights in the ancient world. And he instructs them how they are to live, especially if they had unbelieving husbands. And before I even read these verses, I want to remind you that this is not a word that's spoken uniquely to wives. I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and Pastor John mentioned that the Bible portrays Godly children as submissive to parents. Godly citizens as submissive to government. Godly church members as submissive to their leaders within their local church. Godly slaves as subject to their masters. And godly wives as submissive to their husbands. And in case you think that it's only limited to those roles, he continues, he says, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. So whoever, that's anybody, child, adult, citizen, non-citizen, church member, non-church member, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Male, female, that's true of both. Whoever would be great must be the servant of everyone. Jesus said, bless those who curse you, To everyone. Pray for those who abuse you. To everyone. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Jesus says that not just to wives. He says that to husbands. He says that to men and women. Paul said in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interest of others. He says that to men and to women. Husbands, if you look to your own interests and ask your wife to serve you, you are disobeying the clear command of Scripture. You are to put her interests above your own. The context of these commands comes in a Bible that teaches us to follow the example of Christ. 
Piper says, in other words, humility, servanthood, and submission are not a sidebar in the New Testament. They are pervasive and foundational. It's not a handful of texts like we're looking at this morning. It's everywhere. And this entire emphasis in the New Testament is as prominent as it is because God intends for Christ to be exalted usually and normatively by attitudes and actions that show others that we are so content and so secure in Christ that we don't need to be vengeful or dominating or self-exalting. That is what is behind the whole picture of a humble, submissive person. Our security, our contentment, Our identity is in being the blood-bought, universe-inheriting children of God. And what a freedom it is. Peter, at the end of the passage we're looking at today, talking to husband, said, Husband, no, your wife is a co-heir with you. She is not behind you or beneath you in the kingdom of God. She is a co-heir. And if you fail to treat her like that, God will not listen to your prayers, period. So with that as a backdrop, we need to hear some verses that are horribly unpopular today. And I believe we are going to suffer until we learn to listen to what the Scriptures teach us. Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, in other words, he's continuing the instructions for how to live honorably so that unbelievers will see our lives and glorify Jesus. Same line of thought, same instructions. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter is saying some things that are deeply countercultural in his own day. To begin with, in the first century, it was expected, it was more than expected, it was demanded that you would worship the same gods that your husband worshipped. And Peter is addressing women as people who have a right to follow Jesus even when their husbands don't. He does not tell them, God will have mercy on you because you have no power. He says, submit to your husbands so that they will be one. In other words, he's saying, you are right, your husband is wrong. Be patient in how you behave so that your wrong husband, by the mercy and grace of God, one day may be won over to the faith by your conduct. Peter expects the wife to submit first to the Lord Jesus Christ that we are all called to submit to. And in her obedience to the Lord, she's to live in such a way so that her unbelieving husband may be won to faith in Christ by her conduct. I do want to say the fact that she is called to obey the Lord puts Jesus as her first king. And so if the husband is trying to lead her into sin, she is not to follow. And if there is sexual abuse or physical abuse of any kind, call the police. And if you are afraid to call the police, call someone you love and trust and find the help to report that. We do not live in a society where abuse is tolerated of any kind. 
And I do not believe that these commands expect you to live in an environment of abuse. So be very clear. Jesus is your first Lord. If your husband or your father is abusive, get out and get safe. You can see evidence of that, not only in this passage, but also in the book of Acts. Very often, we point to the godly women that Peter references, and and I'll mention some of those in just a moment. But Peter, the guy writing this letter, is leading the church in the book of Acts in chapter 5, and a husband and wife decide that they will look like amazingly generous Christians, but secretly keep some of their wealth for themselves, and they conspire together to sin. I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter later, Acts chapter 5, for the sake of time. I'm just going to tell you what happens. As Ananias, the husband, comes before the church with an offering, pretending like it's the wholesale of their house and goods, and lays it at the apostles' feet like some sort of holy sacrificial saint, Peter says, did you... Did you really intend to give everything, knowing full well that he was lying and he hadn't? And Ananias said, yes, this is, this is everything. We're giving you it all. And Peter says, you haven't lied to men. You've lied to God, and God strikes him dead. They carry out his body, and a few minutes later, his wife comes in. And Peter asked the same question. He said, did you guys agree that you were going to give everything in your household to the church? And she says, yes, we did. And Peter does not say to her, good job submitting to your husband. He doesn't. He says, how is it that you conspired together to commit this sin? And God strikes her dead as well. She followed her husband into sin when she should not have, and she was accountable for the sin, just like Ananias was. God takes sin in the life of a believer enormously serious. And if your husband wants you to do something that you know is wrong, you don't submit to him and say, well, God told me to submit. You, as best you can, humbly and graciously and lovingly say, No, I cannot and I will not. And you follow your Lord Jesus Christ. I also want to be very clear that this command for wives to be subject to their husbands, I was watching a great video with a teacher named Jen Wilkin who was was talking about how sometimes this is so easily misunderstood. One of her favorite shows as a kid growing up was Leave it to Beaver. And a little bit later, as a mom, she thought, oh man, like, I hate some of the junk that they put on TV today. I'm just going to put this classic show on for my kids. And all of a sudden, she's watching it with an adult woman eyes and thinking, wow, this is crazy. This is, this is not at all what life is like. It's not what my house is like. And sometimes, Christians have behaved as if we have to fit those classic roles perfectly. Like, you're not a man if you don't sit down and enjoy football. I would flunk that every time. I have no idea what's happening in football most of the time. Or you're not a woman if you're not a great cook. I'm going to mention Chris loves to cook. His butternut squash soup is famous in three counties. He is a manly man. And so these commands are not for a moment intended for us to grab some moment in American history and say, my house must look like this. There is more flexibility and freedom there than you can imagine. Peter instructs godly wives not to do a list of duties, but instead to have a type of of character. There is enormous flexibility in what this looks like from house to house. It does not need to be the same. In fact, I can tell you, I don't change as many diapers as Lauren does because I'm not with the kids as much as she is. 
but I do change a lot. It's not women's work to take care of our children. Husbands and wives work together. They share responsibilities. There is an enormous degree of flexibility in what the home looks like. But Peter does instruct godly wives to be subject to their husbands. What does this mean? I believe it is an attitude that is willing to encourage, support, strengthen, and follow. I'm going to give you that again. It is an attitude that is willing to encourage, support, strengthen, and follow. And in my life with Lauren, there have been a couple of times. Some of you may know that we lived in Chicago. You may not know why we moved to Chicago. We moved there so that Lauren could take a degree at DePaul and earn her master's degree. I worked a terrible job that I hated for years so that we could have the flexibility for her to complete her master's degree. Our lives have not been organized so that I could follow my calling and she could support me in whatever was necessary. I, as a husband, have tried to make sure that she could thrive with the gifts and talents that God has given her, and our home has been happier and better because I've tried to make an environment where she thrives, and she also has an attitude that encourages and supports and strengthens me as I do my work as well, whether it's as a pastor or even earlier. Uh, My thesis for my master's degree took me four years to write. I was humiliated that it took so long. It was agonizing. It felt like my brain was being ripped apart as I tried to wrestle with content that I did not understand. And there were several weeks and even months where I did not work on it because I didn't know if I could. And in that season, the only reason it ever was completed was because Lauren continued to support and strengthen and encourage me to believe that I could do it, and to lovingly, she never nagged, but to lovingly give me space where I could work and to talk through it with me. In fact, there was at one point where I was getting very close to the end, and, and if, you ever, if you ever are at a holiday party with me or anything, you say, what was your master's thesis about? Lauren, like a superhero, will jump in between us and say, you don't want to know. She knows that because she was there while I wrote it and understands that I can talk in an almost foreign language about abstract things like the word the. And at one point as I was getting close to the end, she looked at me and she said, I know why it took you four years to write this. It was enormously difficult. And her submission was in recognizing that I was best I could trying to use the gifts that God had given me to complete a task that I believed God wanted me to complete for the sake of our home, for the sake of our future. And she continued to encourage me until the work was done. So if you read it, the only part that's actually worth reading is the beginning. It's dedicated to her because she helped me get the job done. You do not follow your husband into sin. There are going to be times where I believe at some point, Lauren would say things like, even if you don't, I love you anyway. We'll figure out. There are going to be times where a husband's plans don't work. It's not your job to to hang on to a sinking ship in one sense. Your call is to lovingly come alongside and support, strengthen, encourage, and yes, Follow. Now, Peter gives a couple of clear commands. He says, don't focus on your outward appearance. Don't try to manipulate your husband with your looks. Don't take your identity and your physical appearance. Scripture teaches very clearly. This is tempting to both men and women, but I believe that for many different reasons, some of them, yes, absolutely cultural. Some of them sinful. Yes, women are slightly more tempted to focus on externals and physical appearance. I won't say they are exclusively because as a guy, I can tell you, I care what I look like. It might not be obvious, but I do. Peter is instructing wives in particular here because the temptation is to emphasize physical appearance when you don't have any other power. And he says instead of that, you're to focus on a kind of inward beauty. You're to focus 
unimperishable qualities of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Proverbs 31 says that charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Jen Wilkin talked about marriages that had existed for 50 and 60 years, and there's an element of physical beauty that's just not possible late in life. And yet there can be an enormously beautiful and rich quality of love and tender care that you can see in some of the seniors in our own church as they continue to love each other into old age. The goal is to not be incredibly hot and sexy for five minutes. It's to have a love that will last for decades and decades even when physical beauty fades. And so Peter points his women, his women readers to some examples from the Old Testament. And he broadly does say, this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So you can think through not just Sarah, who he mentions, but you can think through Rahab and Deborah. And you can think through Hannah and her beautiful broken prayer. You can think through Abigail, who had an idiot fool for a husband. You can look to her for a model and how does she as a godly woman try to keep their home from being destroyed when Nabal is such an idiot. You can see how she interacts with King David. Not as a domineering, controlling woman, but as a woman who is pleading for her household to not be destroyed. And You can see her humility. She exerts her will, but she does so with grace. You can think through Esther and her courage. Or you can think through the the book of Luke. Think through Elizabeth who had longed for a a baby her whole life. And her husband doesn't even believe an angel when the angel appears and promises they'll have a baby. Think through godly Elizabeth who experiences the joy of knowing that all the promises of God are about to be fulfilled and her little baby is part of it. And you can certainly think through Mary. It's so easy this time. You read through the beautiful prayer that Mary prays. Really, she's echoing Hannah from the Old Testament, exalting God who looks to the lowly and downcast, who is a champion of the poor. You can think about the women who supported the ministry of Jesus. You can think about Priscilla. You can think about Lydia and Philippi. You can think about Dorcas. Think through these godly women who were faithful followers of God. But Peter points specifically to Sarah. And here's why I think he does. Because Sarah was married to the father of faith who believed God, who saw enormous blessing and yet who had such tremendous failures, he would have been an almost impossible husband to be married to. Twice, to save himself, he put Sarah in terrible risk. Only the mercy of God rescued her and preserved the promise that God had made to Abraham. And yet, Sarah... Peter mentions that she calls Abraham Lord. She only does that once in recorded scripture. And it's not in either of those circumstances where Abraham is putting himself before his wife. It's actually when they're hearing from God what God is going to do through their family. And God is promising that they will have a baby. And and we don't know exactly what's happening in her heart. It seems like she doesn't believe it. She laughs. And in that context, she calls Abraham Lord. Lord, she's not saying, all right, I'm, I'm going I'm to go ahead and do exactly what he wants. She's kind of wrestling with it. And Peter points to this bizarre example, I think, because it shows that for all of his failures, Sarah was still committed to going with him. She had left her home when Abraham heard a voice from God and said, God's told us to go to a land. And she says, okay, where are we going? And he says, I don't know. He said, he said he'll tell me later. He just said, go, leave. And, Ab- and Sarah went and left with him. And through their long lives, Abraham experiences some triumphs and she would have celebrated those with him, but he also experiences some deep fear and doubt And in those moments, it would have been tempting for her to say, you know, I'm out. I'm going to go back to my dad's house. I'm going to pack up. Well, they don't have any kids. 
that promise doesn't seem to be working out real well. I'm just going to go. And she never did. Even though Abraham was not a great husband, she continued to be with him. And you can see in this tiny little moment in Genesis when she calls him Lord, that her attitude is still to follow and to support and to encourage. And you see that she experiences the blessings of promise that Abraham had received from God. You see, in Sarah, you see someone who stuck through good times and bad times. And you see the blessing of God that she did enjoy. And I want to say to you women, whether you're single or married, when you follow God, you will be blessed. It will not be easy. But you will be blessed. Peter then turns from instructing wives to have this beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, says they are to do good, to not fear anything that is frightening. If that's ever an image of strength, I I don't know what is. He turns and addresses husbands, and he gives them one verse. Probably because husbands have almost no risk in their relationship. But he's giving some clear direction. Paul gives more direction in Ephesians. Someday I'll preach through that passage and we'll spend more time talking about this. But Paul tells a little bit more in detail how a husband is to follow the example of Christ. Here, Peter simply says this, Likewise, in other words, this still falls under, let your conduct among an unbelieving watching world be honorable. In other words, husband, how you treat your wife makes a difference in what people think of Jesus. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be Hindered. Now, it's easy to feel like Peter has just added insult to injury because after he's instructed wives to be submissive to their husbands, then he calls them weaker. If you've ever seen a woman give birth, or if you've ever seen a woman rescue a child in danger, you understand that women are awfully strong. And yet, Peter is saying something to husbands about how to treat their wives. So let me get this clear. I do not believe in any way that Peter is talking about mental, emotional, moral, or spiritual weakness. Women are just as smart as men. If you were to compare, let me be clear, there are stupid men and there are stupid women. That is true. Not everyone is a genius. If you were to compare me and Lauren, I honestly believe there are areas where Lauren is smarter than I am, and she will tell you there are areas where I am more intelligent than she is. I have a knack for languages that is curious and somewhat unique. She doesn't have that. She has gifts that I don't have. She, she, when we moved in to our apartment in Chicago, it was just under 300 square feet. It's a tiny little studio. It was tight. And Lauren got out this program that I had never seen, measured all of our furniture, and started arranging it on her laptop before we even moved to Chicago. She, she used the plan that we got from the website to know how large it was. And she had like an engineering piece of her brain that I did not know existed. And I, I, not in a million years, would have even tried that. I would have said, I don't know how, but it'll fit. And if it doesn't fit, I'll change it so it does, you know? She made that totally unnecessary. She planned ahead of time in a way that I could not. She has mental strengths that I don't have. And I believe if you were to compare men and women globally, you would find the same thing is generally true. Not different in terms of intelligence. Emotionally, men and women are both emotional. They might be emotional over different things, but we both have emotional strengths and weaknesses. Morally, we are equally tempted to sin. Theologically, you cannot believe 
that a woman is weaker without somehow suggesting that Jesus isn't a sufficient savior for her. Because if he's not tempted in all points like she is, he might not be a great fit to die in her place. It is so true that we are all broken. She is not spiritually weaker. Here's what I think Peter does mean. She is, on average, physically weaker. Now, in in the providence of God, this week, I I learned that there is a girl that works at the gym who can deadlift more than I can. And she's much smaller than I am. So, I know there are enormously strong women. There are women who are stronger than I am. Not saying that. On average, if you compare the two, most men who are married will discover that they are physically stronger than their wives. Peter says, don't for a moment abuse your physical strength in your relationship with your wife. Instead, use it as a means to serve her. One of the great challenges in trying to figure out men and women, how we function equally again and again and again, we see on on TV and in movies the temptation to make a woman just as strong as a man. All of the female Avengers are as strong as the male Avengers. Some of them are so much stronger that it's almost a joke. But in real life, it is not that way. A couple of months ago, Lauren and I, lights are out, getting ready to go to bed. She says, I smell something. I said, you do? Like, like what? Like, like maybe there's a dead mouse that I missed somewhere? Or like what? Said, no, I think I smell a man. Smell a man? I'm like, I'm not wearing anything. I, I showered recently. It's not me. Said, no, it's, it's not you. I, I don't know what it is. So in the dark of night, I get up and start to go to look for this intruder in our household. I don't look at her and go, babe, we're one in Christ. I'm tired. Why don't you go look? I don't do that. It's not her job. Physically, I am stronger. In theory, I ought to be able to take some more hits before I die. So it makes sense that she is behind me to protect our kids in case I can't do whatever is necessary. That will always be true. We don't split that responsibility 50-50. If she says something's wrong tonight, I'm not going to say, you know, I got up last time. Come on, it's your turn. We don't share that responsibility equally. Peter makes it very clear. You are to live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to her, knowing that she is physically weaker than you. And he does this. He says she is a co-heir. In other words, many people will point to the verse in Galatians where Paul says that all are one in Christ. And it's true. All are one in Christ. And they'll say, so there's no, no difference, no distinction of any kind. Well, that's not true. In Galatians, Paul is talking about salvation. He's talking about how your sins are forgiven. Not talking about how to run your home. If you want to know what Paul thinks about how to run your home, read Ephesians where he says the exact same thing that Peter says. And the fact that your wife is a co-heir with you in Christ means that you need to treat her with the honor and dignity due to her place in Jesus. You have a responsibility to create an environment where she can flourish and thrive. And if you are a poor husband, people will not want to worship Jesus because of how you mistreat your wife. Recognize so much is at stake here. So husbands, here's what I would say to you. You might wonder, okay, so if it's her job to submit and it's my job to lead, I gave you some clear suggestions for what submission means in terms of supporting, encouraging, and strengthening. What does godly Christ-like leadership mean? This might be a letdown, but here's, here's my best shot at it. I believe that biblical leadership in the home means being willing to make suggestions and to listen to your wife 
and to admit when you're wrong. Now, making suggestions means a couple of things. You don't wait until a problem is so bad that she has to bring it to your attention before you address it. Obviously, if she sees it first and brings it to your attention, then, then you try to start solving it. And if she's already solved it, you give her a hug and say, God bless you, you're an awesome wife. But if you've got a problem that you haven't solved yet, come to the table ready to offer solutions. I can tell you from practice, most of my initial solutions are dumb. You don't have to solve the problem first. You're just initiating. You're just beginning. That's what leadership is. It's initiation. It's not having all the answers. It's starting the process to look for them so that she's not stuck doing all the work by herself. Be the first to start a conversation when you know there's a need. Be the first to apologize when you know that you're wrong. Both when there are problems and when you recognize something good. Be the first to voice praise and encouragement. Lead your home in joy and celebration. Don't sit on the couch while the kids and your wife celebrate Christmas. Don't be a Grinch. Now look, maybe, maybe your wife is going to enjoy some of those things more than you do and she's going to express a strength. Then support her and strengthen her and encourage her. Figure out whatever it is that helps your wife thrive and create the environment where she can thrive to the best of your ability. Put your, your needs last and her needs first. You recognize her strengths. You encourage her to pursue them. You cannot do this by being a domineering monster. So, for example, be willing to open the stupid salad box. Come up with a plan and recognize that your first draft might be stupid and your wife can lovingly show you how and why it's stupid. But you will continue leading by beginning the process and offering ideas and listening to her ideas. Listen and talk. Meet her needs. Try to understand what they are. And notice Peter's implied threat here. He says, if you don't treat your wife well, your prayers will be hindered. In other words, if you do not lead your wife rightly, God is not going to bless you. God is a God who loves to hear the cries of the downcast and the oppressed. And if your wife is one of those people, he will hear her cries and hold you accountable for your failure to love her as Christ loved the church. So be examining your own heart towards your wife. Wives, as I close, I recognize some of you have come from abusive backgrounds. Some of you are in marriages that you're frustrated with who your husband is. It doesn't feel like he is honoring you as he should. Let me encourage you to listen to what Peter has said to you. Do not look at what Peter has said to the husband and say, I'm free because he's not doing this. If you are bitter and resentful, your witness to your kids and your community is compromised. I did not say that you need to agree with your husband. He might be wrong. If he's wrong, you should disagree with him. But don't let disagreement become a source of bitterness and resentment. Disagree in a gracious way. Never belittle your husband. Because if you do, your witness both to him and to your children is compromised. Husbands, be faithful in loving your wife. And I want to end with an illustration of a guy that I deeply respect. When we were in Chicago, we, we were members of Moody Church. Pastor Lutzer is this old, grizzled guy. He was in his 70s and, and had 30-plus years of experience behind him, both as a husband and as a pastor. And we ended up really respecting him a lot. And we had never thought of him as anything other than a pastor. But we learn the story that, that he became pastor of Moody Church while he was pursuing a Ph.D. in philosophy from Loyola. He was teaching at Moody Bible Institute at the time. He had served in pastoral ministry for a couple of years, and it had not gone well. The family was pretty hurt. 
They were not wanting to stay in ministry. He loved philosophy and was able to teach philosophy while he pursued his PhD. He looked forward to being a professor for the rest of his life. And they were attending Moody Church. And one day, Moody Church has very little parking, so it's very typical Dads will drop their wives and kids off at the curb and then go park the car God knows where and then walk back. And as Pastor Lutzer, at this point, he was just Professor Lutzer, was walking into the church building, Warren Wearsby, the current pastor of the church, was walking out of the church building and said, Erwin, I'm so glad you're here. I need you to preach. And then he got in his car and left. So, Pastor Lutzer went up to the pulpit, preached who knows what. He was a godly man, loved the Lord, had served as a pastor before. I don't know what he pulled out, but he preached a message and then became the interim pastor. And he served as interim pastor, just preaching, doing pulpit supply, saying, I don't want to be a pastor. That's not who I am. That's not who God made me. It's not for me. And then God began to do a work in his heart. And he began to recognize that God was calling him to be a pastor in full-time ministry. That being the professor at Moody Bible Institute was not exactly what he had wanted for Erwin. And so he started this kind of spiritual struggle where he felt like God was calling him to pastoral ministry, but his wife and his family had been so hurt that they wanted nothing to do with pastoral ministry. And in fact, Rebecca, his wife, flat out told him, I don't want you to ever serve as a pastor, period. So Pastor Lutzer is stuck. God is calling him one way and his wife is telling him no. And he said he got to a place where he knew that the Lord was calling him, but he also knew that the Lord had called him to create a home where his wife could thrive. So he was standing in his office in Fitzwater, one of the buildings on Moody Bible Institute, looking out the window, and he said, God, look, you've called me to love my wife as Christ has loved the church, and if I follow your call, I'm not going to be loving her. I can't change this situation. I want to follow you, and so I need you to bring unity to my home. And in answer to his prayer, Pastor Lutzer goes home, and Rebecca looks at him, and he says, I think that you need to be the next pastor of of Moody Church. He never said a word to her. He prayed. And she, in love, recognized God's call on his life and laid her fears and hurt down. And they moved together in ministry. God blessed them at Moody Church with 35 years of sweet and good and godly ministry. Pastor Lutzer is a stunning example, I believe, of a man who followed God's call both to be obedient in ministry, but also to put his wife before himself. He didn't say, look, I'm the man in this house. I've got a call in my life. Get behind me, woman. Not in a million years. Because if he had, God would not have answered his prayers and he would have been an unfit pastor. Instead, he led his home In a kind of humble unity, as he followed Christ, his wife followed him. And so guys, you might not be called a pastoral ministry. That's fine. Your calling is just the same. All of us are just part of the body of Christ. I don't know what your specific job is. I don't know if you're single, if you're married. Here's what I do know. As the church follows this model, the world might hate what it sounds like, but they cannot deny the joy that it creates in our homes and in our lives. So husbands, perhaps you need to apologize to your wives for how you've treated them. Wives, perhaps you need to apologize to your husbands for how you've treated them. Wherever you're at, it's my prayer that we would be a blessing to a watching world and that we would point people to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, on behalf of our single people, I ask that you would give them a desire to be godly men and women who learn from your word what it means to be godly men and women, who follow the examples that you've given us, and most of all, who follow after Christ. Father, I pray 
for our husbands and wives, young and old, that you would help us to get this right, to lay down our hurt and our bitterness, to forsake laziness and indifference, and instead to follow after Christ, being a blessing to a watching world. I pray that our homes would be full of joy, especially in this season. And I ask for your help and your strength in Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So I want to dismiss you with a blessing from the Lord. I know this has gone a little bit long, and a part of me is sorry for that. Church, I believe that this kind of light shines especially bright when we do get it right because there is so much confusion about it. And so it's my prayer that even when I read and say things that are not popular, that our church would be blessed because we have sought to follow the Lord faithfully as his word has taught us. And in asking for help, let me read you a a beautiful doxology from Jude. Jude writes and says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.